joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Francesca Ruddy, a barrister at Fountain Court. On this episode, we discuss the current volatility in energy markets and how this is likely to create energy disputes. The context for our discussion is that less than two years since the historic lows seen during the pandemic, oil and gas prices have now hit record highs. There has been a resurgence in energy demand post-pandemic, with supply continuing to lag. Added to this, bouts of extreme weather, a lack of storage capability, rising demand for liquefied natural gas across Asia, and of course, fractious geopolitics, have all combined to produce a high energy price environment. This has had enormous impacts on matters as diverse as commerce, the cost of living, and the green agenda. Our focus today will be on the commercial impacts of this volatility, specifically the energy disputes that it's likely to provoke. Our discussion begins with a broad assessment of the impact of energy price volatility on contractual disputes, principally in the oil and gas sector. We then move to considering the specific impact of the war in Ukraine and current sanctions on Russian entities, as well as the possibility of further sanctions. We also consider how the renewed focus on energy security interacts with the decarbonisation agenda, before reflecting on current trends in environmental litigation more generally. Joining me in this discussion is Rachel Lydgate, a solicitor advocate and partner in the Dispute Resolution Division of Herbert Smith Freehills in London. Rachel has over 15 years' experience advising clients in the oil, gas and power industries on contractual and other disputes, with her practice spanning high court litigation, international arbitration, expert determination and mediation. Rachel is ranked as a next generation partner in Legal 500 UK and recently chaired the Energy Disputes Panel at London International Disputes Week. She was also my supervising partner when I practiced at HSS, and we've worked on a number of energy disputes together. I'll be asking Rachel to share her insights into the types of disputes we can expect to arise from the current volatility in energy prices, and how the courts are likely to resolve them. I'm also joined by Elizabeth Farrell, a partner in the Energy and Natural Resources Group at Reed Smith. Elizabeth is also ranked as a next generation partner by Legal 500 UK for her work in commodities disputes. She has extensive experience in the international trade and transportation of a wide range of commodities, particularly coal, metal, iron ore, LNG, crude oil and oil products. She also has wide ranging transactional experience, having advised on long term offtake agreements, flash title agreements and tolling agreements in the commodities sector. I'll be asking her to draw on that experience and to share her thoughts on the extent to which contracting parties can avoid or minimise the risk of energy disputes through careful drafting. Finally, completing our panel for this podcast is James Cutris QC, a silk fountain court who specialises in heavy and complex commercial disputes, which are international in nature and often raise jurisdictional issues. James is ranked as a leading silk by Legal 500 and Chambers and Partners in a range of practice areas, including commercial dispute resolution, insurance, banking and finance, aviation, and professional negligence. He is frequently called upon to advise clients in relation to contractual, recovery, and insurance issues arising out of sanctions, including the recent sanctions imposed on Russia, which he will be discussing later in the podcast. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me to discuss these important topical issues and for making it such an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode.
you all for joining me for what is set to be a wide-ranging discussion. Let's start off with the question of rocketing energy prices and how these are likely to affect contracts in the energy sector. Rachel, turning to you first, can you tell us what kinds of contractual disputes we can expect to arise from the current volatility in energy prices? Well, I think the impact on contracts is really quite huge. So obviously, the war in Ukraine has resulted in parties seeking to exit contracts associated with Russia. And I know James is going to talk more about sanctions in due course. But also, given the huge demand for gas and LNG and the consequent high spot markets, we're seeing a lot of parties seeking to take advantage of price review clauses in long-term supply contracts. And what's really unprecedented in relation to those sorts of disputes is that the high prices come against a background of historically low oil and gas prices. So the pendulum has swung and the wheel of fortune is turned. And if we were doing this podcast two years ago, we'd be speaking in reverse. So what's interesting is that some contractual parties might have had price reviews triggered due to low prices a while ago. And those disputes might still well be working through the arbitration process. But already parties are looking to trigger again now based on high prices. But the issue is that usually one of the contractual requirements for a price reset is that market conditions in the relevant market over the relevant period have changed and those changes have had lasting effects. They are not temporary in nature. So there's therefore a question whether we're seeing a fundamental market change or short-term spikes in prices. And either way, we're we're also seeing parties to long-term contracts seeking to exercise every ounce of contractual flexibility that they can to maximise returns, whether it's around volumes or diversion rights. I think it's also interesting to look at the interaction between price review clauses and force majeure provisions. An FM clause that requires prevention of performance isn't going to apply just because performance of contract becomes more expensive or less profitable. But FM clauses can, of course, be wider than that, and they might come into play where performance is is being impeded in some way. And in that case, I think there might be a question as to whether, if it would be open to a party to trigger a price review, that would preclude the application of the FM provision, or conversely, whether if the requirements to trigger a price review are not satisfied in some way, it naturally follows that the parties can't have intended that whatever has happened could relieve them of their responsibilities pursuant to an FM provision. And thinking about FM more broadly, of course, we've all been immersed in advising on that subject and frustration and material adverse change for the last few years due to the pandemic and not just in the energy sector. But it's certainly the case that a lot of buyers of LNG issued FM notices against their counterparties in February and March 2020, especially in Asia. And there was a lot of what you might call forbearance or proactive commercial dispute resolution in relation to those early pandemic issues. But I think given the new broader climate of political instability and with COVID still bringing pressure to bear in certain regions, and frankly, the lack of clarity that remains in an awful lot of the force majeure clauses that we see, I think force majeure does remain a likely source of disputes. And just to mention one relatively recent judgment, MUR shipping and RTI, which was handed down in March of this year, which was on appeal from an arbitration. That wasn't about LNG supplies. I think it was about bauxite. And I'm not going to go into any of the facts, but the dispute was between a ship owner and a charterer. And the parent company of the charterer became subject to US sanctions. And the ship owner called FM on the basis that the charterer would breach the sanctions if it paid it in dollars, which was the currency under the contract. The charterer said it wasn't FM, first because they could pay in euros, and secondly because there wasn't actually anything preventing the loading or loading or transportation of the cargo. But the High Court found that there had been an FM event, 
and the ship owner was required to use its reasonable endeavours to overcome that, but that did not mean it had to accept anything other than contractual performance. So they didn't have to accept payment in euros. And the other key point from that case was that the event did not have to directly prevent or delay operational performance for it to constitute FM. It was enough that a reasonable decision, i.e. to refuse to accept payment in euros, was taken in reaction to an FM event, i.e. the sanctions. That didn't break the chain in causation between the FM event and the non-performance. So again, looking ahead to what James might say on sanctions, I think that's a case that we're going to be hearing more about in future disputes in the sector. Thanks, Rachel. That's very interesting. I suppose one theme that underlines many of those examples are the solvency concerns that are affecting participants in, in energy contracts. I wonder, Elizabeth, are you seeing the more practical effects of that, you know, the impact of, say, insolvency and the collapse of projects and, and disputes arising out of that? Absolutely. So in the last couple of years, it's been a, a very strange time, as Rachel was explaining, um, such volatility in the energy markets. We have seen a large number of disputes which have arisen either out of insolvency or out of, I suppose, what you might class fear of insolvency and preemptive steps being taken to try to escape from uh, contracts with parties about whom credit concerns have arisen. We've seen some oil refineries in, in bankruptcy or near bankruptcy being rescued at the last minute by government packages. We've even seen, perhaps not exclusively, certainly not exclusively in the energy markets, situations in which insolvencies have resulted from fraud, which has been exposed by the, the pandemic and uh, the inability of fraudsters to continue their normal business. It's not just lawyers who've been affected by in their working habits by the pandemic. So yes, we've seen insolvency-related disputes. We've seen a lot of situations where actually commercial counterparties who are not insolvent have effectively deliberately breached or walked away from a contract that has become out of the money for them. So a buyer that maybe entered into a contract at the, the height of the market now seeing prices falling and you know, wanting to walk away. And that certainly happened a lot in 2020. I mean, we might see the reverse now, but, you know, depending on what happens with the war in Ukraine in particular, you know, we may well be very soon once again in a situation, prices falling, buyers trying to walk away. But sometimes such breaches are, are referred to, I think probably exclusively by lawyers, as efficient breaches um, in the sense that it may be, particularly if there's a cap on liability in the contract, that the damages a party faces as a result of its breach are smaller than the losses they would make by performing. We've seen cases under long-term contracts in particular where a buyer has paid an advance, a large sum in advance, and having done so perhaps faces cash flow problems, has thought again because of changes in the market, but for whatever reason wants to get that advance back. An example of that is the, the New Stream Trading and Nord Napfa case, which on which the Court of Appeal ruled earlier this year. And I won't spend too long talking about that, but I think just to mention, this is quite educational to, to know that uh, New Stream Trading had agreed to sell 30,000 metric tons of, of diesel to Nord Napfa. It was due to be sourced from a refinery in Russia. And Nord Napfa had paid an advance of more than $60 million for that diesel. 
New Stream declared force majeure, which they're entitled to do, ultimately terminated the contract in reliance on the force majeure clause. And of course, Naphtha turned around and said, well, you know, please repay the advance that we paid you or 16 million plus. There was a dispute because there was no clear clause in the contract for the rep- uh, which would expressly allow for the repayment of that advance. But happily for North Naphtha, the Court of Appeal agreed with the summary judgment of the commercial courts that although there was no clear express obligation for repayment, it was plainly, <laughs> it was plain that there should be an implied term for that repayment. But, you know, I think in the context of our podcast, interesting because it's, it's certainly, you know, there are situations in which a party might want to terminate a contract to try and get its prepayment back. Now, Rachel referred to the, the war of Ukraine leading to some creative, I think, attempts to declare force majeure. I think we'll certainly be seeing more of those uh, in the energy sector. We've seen plenty in the agricultural commodities sector in recent months. But I mean, just one, one more point I wanted to make, which is that we do see some of our sophisticated clients increasingly focusing on making sure that their commercial and operational teams really understand their contract terms and looking to capitalize on potential, even accidental breaches by the other party, which might previously have been sort of let go. So, you know, looking to rely on common law rights to treat a contract as repudiated, looking to insist on very strict performance or else potentially renegotiate out of a, a contract. And so it's an example of, I suppose, perhaps I say this quite optimistically, of, you know, lawyers really being able to show their value to commercial teams by advising on long-term high-value contracts in particular. I mean, just one more point to make, which is, you know, <laughs> I feel like I always have to say, especially if we're talking in the context of long-term contracts, you know, do treat the termination always of, of long-term contracts with caution. You know, there's issues around breaching of instalment contracts, whether they're truly an instalment contract, uh, whether a breach is, is a repudiation of the entire contract or, or is it really a, a several breach just allowing a party to claim damages, all those kinds of issues, which uh, require certainly careful analysis by lawyers. So I suppose, you know, at least for lawyers, the market prospects are are reasonably, reasonably bright. It's helpful to hear the examples you've given, both of you, MUR Shipping and NordNAPTA, of, of some of the cases that we've seen. I wonder, stepping back, if there's much by way of judicial guidance on how these disputes more generally will be resolved. Rachel, turning to you. Sure. Well, if we're talking about contractual disputes, then I'm, I'm going to sound trite, but it really all comes down to the language and the rules of contractual construction, which are pretty well established. Um, so, of course, under English law, there's no civil law concept of hardship, as you would get in some other jurisdictions where the courts can really be quite flexible. So, look, the governing law is key. And of course, You might be dealing in the energy sector with some standard form contracts where there might be some guidance or precedents which are on point, but a lot of it will be bespoke. I might make one point about extra contractual documents in that context and the need to be cautious about trying to rely on them because we've seen that lately. I don't mean where you have suites of contractual documents which may well need to be read together to interpret them. And the Euron and Apache case is relatively recent authority for that. Uh, as you would know, Francesca. But we have seen attempts to pray completely extra contractual documents in aid in order to bring in particular market circumstances into the contract. For example, Rockrose and its litigation with TACA about the operatorship of Brayfield, 
tried to introduce the OGA's MER strategy, the Maximising Economic Recovery Strategy, to form the basis of an argument that there should be an implied term about collaborating in good faith. And those arguments will largely not be successful as, as that was the case there. Thank you, Rachel. And, and as you mentioned earlier, we also have lessons we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic and the case law that was generated by that. Not least of all that we can probably close the door on the idea of uh, temporary frustration as an argument. Elizabeth, you also have transactional experience in this sector. You've mentioned also that lawyers are now showing their value in explaining and clarifying the importance of key contractual terms. In your view, how can contracting parties mitigate the risks of the sorts of disputes we've discussed so far in their contractual language? Well, again, I'll try not to be trite, um, but I suppose to say, you know, when it comes to some of the clauses that uh, a particular focus, when there's a risk of default, you know, of course, the termination clause is making sure they're very clear, cause, you know, and tailored to the party's particular situations and any particular risks with a specific counterparty. Certainly seeing in the energy sector, I think, an increasing focus on, on security arrangements, whether that be in the form of pledges over commodities, whether it be um, in the broader sense of parent company guarantees, or perhaps more importantly, you know, guarantees from individuals from ultimate beneficial owners, considerations about enforceability of such guarantees at an early stage you know, it's always to be recommended. We touched a little bit on force majeure already, but I think, you know, for anybody who's not a lawyer who might be listening, you know, to remember always that in an English law contract, force majeure is, is not a sort of term of art that has a particular meaning. You can only rely on force majeure to the extent that your contractual clause is there and allows you to rely on force majeure. So an ability to rely on, on force majeure depends almost entirely on how clearly and comprehensively clause has been drafted. So if you are somebody who is concerned that your ability to perform might be impacted by an event that could be force majeure, you know, of course, you'd be looking to include as exhaustive a list of potential force majeure events in your contract as possible, using broad introductory language to encompass you know, a, a non-exhaustive list of force majeure events that that might not just prevent performance, but also hinder or curtail performance. You know, we've seen, so in, in the oil trading market, you know, BP GTCs 2015 are often incorporated. I mean, they've got a very, very broad seller-friendly force majeure clause. It even includes sort of provision that might give inspiration for other kinds of contracts where, of supply contracts, where a reduction or failure in supply of the contractual seller's intended supplier is a force majeure event, if unforeseen. So that gives the seller contracting on those terms a really, really broad ability to re rely on FM. And then, you know, again, it, it, staying with, with force majeure for a minute, I think just considering very carefully what you want the consequences of force majeure to be. Will it be a right for, for only you to terminate or will it be a right for both parties to terminate? Will it be only after a particular period of time has passed and the force majeure event has continued for 30 days, 90 days, or you know, six months, goodness knows. But you know, bear in mind that you know, sometimes an ability to terminate a contract quickly in an FM situation, especially if it's a spot contract, can increase certainty and, and perhaps have a benefit, particularly in a, a rising market. You, know, you need to think about things like pricing. If you've 
priced based on you know dates of delivery, but delivery is delayed because of force majeure. Do you want to try and legislate for that situation in your in your force majeure clause by saying that prices will be adjusted when there's a force majeure event? It can get as complicated as your lawyer wants it to be and your commercial people want it to be. But you know, certainly force majeures. You know, really very distinct from a, a price review situation, which Rachel was talking about, you know, for many reasons, but typically a force majeure clause will only deal with unforeseeable events, whereas a price review might be um, prompted by, by market changes that might well be at least partially foreseeable at the time of entering into the contract. Price review clauses, again, you know, it's, it's about sort of careful thought about your particular market and what might possibly change in that particular market. So you know, being as clear as possible as you, as you possibly can be about the nature of changes in the market that would be required to justify a, a price review. And what market do you mean? You know, if a clause talks about a change in the market, what market? Is it the market at the destination? You know, can you define that reasonably, reasonably tightly? Or like many people, you know, are you going to be negotiating in a situation where it's impossible for the parties to agree on a tightly worded price review clause because neither wants to constrain themselves when they, you know, don't have a crystal ball? So it may be that <laughs> there's almost either as a matter of necessity through commercial negotiations or sometimes kind of at least half deliberately a decision to have a relatively vague price review clause because you know, neither party wants to restrict itself to a, a clause that might become outdated. But of course, that, you know, really can backfire when parties have different views of interpretation of that clause and disputes are generated as a result. I mean, there really are a, a large number of price review disputes. And I think it's yeah, fundamentally for that reason, perhaps a deliberate lack of clarity when, when drafting. I can see a lot of nodding. I suspect the importance of what we're once consigned to the status of boilerplate clauses is a theme we will see in the next section as well, as we move to consider one of the key ingredients in the current volatility in energy prices, which is, of course, the impact of recent international sanctions on Russia being a major exporter of natural gas. The adoption of wide-rating sanctions has also given rise to disputes between commercial parties operating in the energy sector. The first point to note, of course, is that Western states have had in place complex and far-reaching sanctions targeting Russia for some time now, and notably since 2014. Um, and of course, these restrictions remain in place. But I wonder, James, if you can enlighten us, what are the main sanctions which have more recently been imposed affecting the energy sector? Well, the UK has export restrictions on oil refining goods and technology. It also has asset freezes and prohibitions on dealing with designated Russian persons and entities. And it's restricted port access to Russian-owned vessels and aircraft. Now, the EU also has its own raft of sanctions, which include things such as import restrictions and restrictions on financing or creating joint ventures with entities operating in the energy sector in Russia. The US has gone further by imposing restrictions on the imports of oil and petroleum products of Russian origin. And how does the imposition of sanctions generate contractual disputes in the energy sector? Well, first, there are contracts where the continued performance puts the company at risk of breaching sanctions. And if the company does perform, that raises issues of penalties for breaches of sanctions or the risk of imprisonment for breach. On the other hand, if the company doesn't perform, 
that raises the question of the extent to which performance may be excused or the contract terminated under express terms. And then you get into questions such as sanctions clauses and force majeure clauses, including the MUR shipping case that we heard about earlier. And there's also the possibility of uh, termination under general principles through frustration, which operates by way of supervening illegality in, in this sort of case. The second category of cases is really those where performance becomes more difficult or costly or even impossible due to supply chain issues or price increases. And that results in disputes where a party seeks to extricate itself from the contract or to change its terms. And again, then you very need, you very much need to focus on the express terms, including price variation clauses, which we've heard about, force majeure clauses, which we've also heard about, and uh, termination provisions. And frustration arguments may also arise, although they tend to be very difficult to sustain. Thanks, James. That's very helpful as a, a general overview of the, the kind of disputes we're talking about here. To, to give that a bit more colour, I wonder, Elizabeth, what kind of scenarios specifically are we talking about here? The first situation is the most obvious one, you know, where the counterparty becomes a sanctioned entity half, halfway through the term of a contract. Or somebody wants to deal with a sanctioned entity and may well have very legitimate reasons for wishing to do so. And there is a possibility in certain circumstances of obtaining a license to trade with a sanctioned entity under US or EU or UK rules or possibly all of those. But practically speaking, that takes a great deal of time to obtain, particularly at the moment when there's been such a an ex- vast expansion in the um, scope of, of sanctions. You know, we, we understand that though the UK body that's responsible for licenses is OFSI, the, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, I think at the moment it's publishing that it will take at least four weeks to get a, a license decision. You know, our experience is that at the moment that's, that's more like about two months. So, you know, that's a very significant period to, to build into planning. You know, the second scenario is, is one where it's unclear whether the counterparty is actually itself subject to sanctions, to asset freeze measures. So we've seen a lot of situations in which the corporate structure of a counterparty is such, is so complicated that, you know, perhaps with this trust structure, trust sitting behind several companies or trustees, you know, a client might be concerned that there is maybe an ultimate beneficial owner in that structure who is sanctioned or shortly become sanctioned, but they can't be sure. And so in that situation, especially if there's an existing contract in place, there's clearly potential sanctions risk for continuing to perform without clarity as to the the structure of the group structure of the counterparty. But, you know, to the extent that the contract doesn't have adequate, very broad sanctions protection in it, there's a real litigation risk if it transpires that a decision perhaps not to perform because of sanctions is actually unfounded. Now, you know, even in that light, it's possible that, that different regulators, especially within the EU, have different considerations, you know, when they're, when they're looking at whether an entity or an individual is subject to asset freeze restrictions or otherwise subject to sanctions. And that, again, leads to uncertainty. You know, we've seen a little bit of sort of shopping between EU member states for comfort letters in relation to particular entities. You know, there's another situation, which is where perhaps 
there are US sanctions in place, which don't apply to the contract parties directly, but the contractual payment currency is, is US dollars, the case we've, we've just discussed. So, you know, our advice there is, is always speak to intended banks who might be involved in the transaction to really understand their sanctions measures and see if they are willing to facilitate US dollar payments. You know, there's quite a variety of practice now between different banks. I suppose the, the final situation is where contracting parties have, through the terms of their sanctions provisions, opted in to additional sanctions obligations, which would not otherwise have applied, or have taken a, a sort of gold-plated approach to self-sanctioning. So they, they wish, you know, for example, not to do a trade that's in any way remotely connected to Russia and try to use their sanctions clause wording to allow them to avoid such a trade. That is tricky to achieve if you're not actually talking about a trade that is prevented by a sanctions measure that actually applies to a party. So there might be a misalignment of contractual sanctions language uh, and, and the, the intention, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit more in a, in a moment. Thank you. That sounds like a very um, complicated picture overall for participants in, um, in the energy sector. I wonder if it's going to become more complicated. As James has noted, sanctions have obviously ramped up very significantly in recent months. But I wonder, is there anything left in the armory? And if so, can we expect to see further measures being taken in the near future? There certainly is. The UK has announced that it intends to phase out imports of Russian oil by the end of the year. But perhaps the most interesting point is a big push by the G7 to implement a price capping mechanism on Russian oil purchases. And they want to do this ahead of an EU ban on providing insurance for seaborne transportation of Russian oil coming into effect in December. Now, that ban could effectively prevent or at least seriously limit Russian oil shipments, which could result in the oil price surging. And that could have very serious economic effects. So the idea of the price cap is to allow a buyer's cartel to fix a low price for Russian oil in place of the insurance ban. And the aim is to limit Russian revenue to stop it financing the war in Ukraine, but at the same time to avoid the price surge that would occur if Russian oil sales were further limited. But there are a number of very serious issues and questions in relation to whether this policy is achievable. One is whether Russia might just turn off the taps. It might not play ball. It also needs Chinese and Indian participation. And although on the one hand, there are advantages to them in limiting the price they pay for oil, there are geopolitical considerations that may have an effect that they are not willing to go along with this uh, price capping mechanism. So in light of this, James, what should contracting parties and their lawyers in the energy sector be thinking about in their contracts? I think the key point is really risk allocation. Now, I mean, depending on their position, parties may want to think about the introduction of flexibility if they're concerned about the impact of the restrictions. And one can do that through sanctions clauses, termination provisions, price review mechanisms, pricing flexibility, and so on. But on the other hand, for other parties, their interest may be in maintaining strict terms to allocate the risk to their counterparties. So I think at the end of the day, one has to consider what the risk is, who it should be allocated to, and how it should be managed. I wonder if I could bring Elizabeth in here. Does this reflect your experience? What are you advising your energy clients to check or to change in, in their commercial contracts? So yes, I mean, we've seen a, a tremendous 
of search in, in sanctions queries as you'd, uh, as you'd expect. And many of those are sort of proactive reviews of, of sanctions wording. Primary focus is usually on, you know, I suppose starting with an, an analysis of which sanctions regimes are relevant to a particular company or, or group of companies. And that might be relevant in the sense of applicable to the entities, applicable to individuals who work for those entities, possibly from a, simply from a, an internal compliance, good governance perspective. Again, a gold plating approach might be the company's practice. So taking that a little bit further, I mean, the, the point I just wanted to develop from, from what I was saying a few minutes ago is that, you know, a key point we've always focused on, and even more so now in the context of the, the new sanctions regimes, is the concept of a clause which talks about applicable sanctions or sanctions that are, that are applied to a party or that apply to the performance of a contract. Because some sanctions regimes, at most, you know, only bite if there's a, a real relevant nexus within the meaning of the sanctions legislation. So, you know, broadly speaking, the EU sanctions regime only applies if there are EU nationals, EU registered entities or business within the EU, talking very broadly, taking place. But parties might want the EU sanctions regime to apply so that they're excused from performance by a contractual clause that refers to applicable sanctions, where there, where there is in fact no EU nexus at all. So I suppose, you know, one area where I see real risk for uh, litigation is around clauses which talk in broad terms about applicable sanctions. I don't think that this has really been tested in the courts yet, but I feel that, you know, we are likely to see cases looking at this in, in some detail in the next year or so. That definitely sounds like one to watch. Now, of course, the conflict in Ukraine is also posing challenges for energy security, which has in some quarters strengthened calls for rapid decarbonisation. Decarbonisation is, of course, a critical part of the international response to climate change. But I wonder if there might be a tension between the focus on decarbonisation and the renewed importance of energy security. Rachel, do you think there is a tension there? I think inevitably that there is a tension. That's the short answer. And, and obviously, the energy security question is now feeding into wider questions around the cost of living crisis. So, I mean, look, we've just seen in the UK in the Conservative Party leadership election, the questions being raised over net zero targets and how fast decarbonisation should move. But on the other hand, then you have increasingly well-organised groups taking action across the world to hold governments and companies to their promises and their targets. So last summer, you know, we were all looking at the uh, Melia de Fonsi decision where they managed to succeed in the Dutch court in arguing that Shell had to reduce its emissions at a fast rate, which Shell promptly then agreed it would do. There's been a huge amount of activity in Australia, for example, claims against Santos alleging that its public statements about being a clean energy producer were incorrect and that that was therefore greenwashing. And for many years, we've seen tons of shareholder and public nuisance and mis-selling claims in the US. And then all of those claims haven't gone very far, very fast. But I think you do see a sort of global litigation playbook emerging. And with every success by one claimant or one NGO, then others are urged to, to bring more and more varied claims across the world. I'm focusing on the UK, thinking about 
the actions we might see in, in courts here. I mean, I think we're quite a long way from seeing a Melia de Fonsi type claim or, or tort claims quite like those in the US. And there are a few reasons for that. And, and in particular, English tort law is quite different to the Dutch, where there is a general duty of care to avoid acts or omissions that cause foreseeable harm to others. And under orthodox English tort law principles, duty of care would, would be a real challenge to overcome. And secondly, causation remains a, a real problem. I mean, how can it be said that a particular company's action or inaction will in itself cause a particular amount of harm? How do you attribute damage? But the cases we are seeing, and there is definitely an uptick in them, is lots of judicial reviews. So most recently, a group of NGOs, including Client Earth, were successful in challenging the government's net zero strategy. And they essentially said that it was too vague to satisfy the relevant legislation. So the government's now been ordered to publish an updated climate report in several months, setting out further detail as to how they say net zero will be achieved, if that's still the goal by then. And we've also seen various judicial reviews against new applications for exploration and production, coal and oil and gas development such as Cambo offshore Shetland. Earlier this year, an environmental group called Paid to Pollute had a claim thrown out. They said that the OGA strategy was illegal because it supported activity that, that was in conflict with net zero goals. And another case, it is definitely one to watch, uh, another one brought by Client Earth, Client Earth is a shareholder in Shell, and it's notified the board of directors of Shell that it is going to start legal proceedings against them for failing to adopt a strategy which aligns with the Paris Climate Agreement. So that claim is based on directors' duties under the Companies Act, a so-called derivative claim, whereby it, it steps into the shoes of Shell to claim against the directors. That's a really unusual type of claim. Client Earth will need permission from the High Court to advance it, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that. So I think on the decarbonisation front, you see a picture emerging of increased activist litigation. But there is a question as to whether voting populations and governments maintain enthusiasm for the public costs associated with getting to net zero, especially getting to it faster and faster. If the cost of living continues to bite or if we are tipped into recession. And the last thing I'd probably say on this topic is that thinking about disputes, there's clearly a vast challenge for organisations in the energy sector in working out what technologies and assets they should invest in to drive this change. And I think against the background of price volatility we're getting, we're going to see missteps or, or very deliberate changes in direction. And there are going to be disputes rising out of uh, you know, those M&A deals and investments and other transactions. Thanks, Rachel. It sounds then from what you're saying that there are lots of novel challenges, but also there's lots of confusion uh, arising out of those. It's certainly true that the pursuit of net zero has seen the introduction of new reporting, disclosure and transparency obligations for corporates in the UK and around the world at the same time as these novel legal challenges are being put forward by various groups. I wonder, Elizabeth, what are some of the challenges to companies in the energy sector seeking to implement these regulatory changes? So at present, you know, there is, despite all the discussion and work that energy companies and governments are putting into considering how does one achieve net zero, what does that even mean? There is a, a lack of hard regulation in the sector at the moment. You know, that will change rapidly. You know, there have been various announcements, particularly the, the European Commission talking about um, you know, proposals to 
for example, decarbonize the EU gas sector. There are environmental reporting guidelines from the the UK government, which talk about um, guidance as to, to carbon reporting and what can legitimately be called net zero. But I would say at the moment, there is still, you know, that lack of hard regulation does mean that there is a a difficulty for companies, you know, of course, also for, for the players, shareholders, directors, because there's a lack of a single or widely recognized standard for achieving carbon neutrality, achieving net zero in any energy market. And perhaps partly because there's a bit of a vacuum in terms of a lack of, of a widely recognized standard or standards. That there is an increasing risk of accusations of greenwashing being leveled at companies who are, you know, developing policies towards net zero. And, you know, perhaps that's why many energy companies are targeting net zero in 2050, but haven't yet set out in detail how that will be achieved. This is all relatively, really very new. Um, so one of the areas certainly you know, my colleagues and I have been talking about recently is that, you know, I think there is a, a tremendous uh, risk or scope for greenwashing disputes in the future, you know, possibly mis-selling claims, possibly, you know, like Rachel alluded to that very interesting potential claim by Client Earth against directors uh, of Shell. But, you know, this, I suppose, all could be categorized effectively as, as a sort of greenwashing type uh, of dispute. And, you know, that, that scope for that kind of dispute can only really increase as, as regulation increases and as companies start to put more firm policies in place. So it sounds then like environmental concerns are, are an, almost a new frontier for misstatement or misselling type disputes. It might be quite interesting then to, to hear from James. I know you've acted in a number of more traditional misselling cases in the financial services sector. What do you make of the suggestion that corporates could be pursued in private damages actions for mis-selling on the grounds of overstating their green credentials? I think it's interesting to look at the potential scale of the problem. The Competition and Markets Authority has taken steps in this area and says it's ready to take regulatory action following a review in which it found up to 40% of green claims could be misleading, which seems like quite a surprisingly high figure. So I think there is a potential for misstatement claims or claims under consumer legislation. If a company makes misstatements in relation to its energy sources or its green credentials and in relation to the sale of securities, so shares and so on, there could also be causes of action under the Financial Services and Markets Act for publishing untrue or misleading statements. But I do think that proving loss is going to be an area of very real difficulty It's difficult to see how most claimants will have suffered an identifiable loss from these sorts of misstatements. Although I think one fertile area may be in relation to rescission claims for misrepresentation, where the party tries to unwind a contract it's entered into on the basis of false representations. And I think those could be used as a way to try and avoid a loss if securities, for example, are purchased and the price has fallen one might try and use this as a way of extricating yourself out of the contract. So I think there is the possibility of of, of these sorts of claims, but I think that um, causation and loss are going to be very real issues. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard of the rescission type claims that you've mentioned. We'll have to wait and see if your predictions prove true in, in that regard. 
Now, while states, commercial parties are navigating their way towards net zero, the effects of climate change are being felt now. And this has led to a series of claims being brought in the English courts in respect of environmental damage. And an emerging trend is the pursuit of claims against English parent companies for environmental harms allegedly caused by foreign subsidiaries. I wonder, Elizabeth, if you could give us some insight as to where we stand now. There have obviously been a series of high-profile judgments in recent years which have considered the scope for this kind of litigation, thinking of Vedanta and Pabi principally. Could you summarise where we're at with parent company liability for foreign subsidiaries? Absolutely. So you've just mentioned the two Supreme Court decisions which um, have set out the law in this area. And, you know, perhaps to some lawyers, real surprise, you know, it's now clearly established that parent companies, so parent companies in the UK, can, in certain circumstances, owe third parties duties of care in relation to the conduct of their foreign subsidiaries, the parent companies' foreign subsidiaries. So, The Supreme Court has laid out some guidance as to relevant factors. It's really around, you know, whether the parent company manages that relevant conduct of of the subsidiary, whether it might be in relation to human rights, modern slavery, it might be in relation to environmental practices, whether the parent company gave defective advice to its subsidiaries, promotes the use of the application of defective group-wide policies, which are then followed by the uh, subsidiary in question. And whether the parent company holds itself out, and that might be publicly through what's said on its website, for example, as as supervising or controlling the actions of of the subsidiary company. You know, I am really summarising what is the two very detailed judgments of the the Supreme Court in um, a few minutes there. But in short, if, if the factors that I've just mentioned and that are set out in the judgments in more detail are satisfied, you know, that, that doesn't amount to piercing the corporate veil. It's instead about establishing the parent company, the UK parent company's direct duty of care to third parties for the acts of its subsidiaries. And so in view of this recent jurisprudence, Are there steps that English parent companies and their lawyers should be taking to make sure that they're adequately addressing this risk? So there are a number of ways of looking at this. You know, I think some people might advise that in-house legal teams be closely involved with the review of any published material in which responsibility is asserted for the establishment of group-wide standards, maybe environmental sustainability, any kind of ESG sort of policy. You know, the risk, of course, of publishing such such policies is that that indicates that the parent company is holding itself out as, as supervising the acts of the subsidiaries in that area. But of course, you know, balanced against that is a desire for many corporations, a genuine desire for good corporate and social responsibility practices. And so, you know, you certainly might take the view that perhaps the best way of making sure that such claims don't succeed is to ensure that subsidiaries are in fact complying with the highest level standards and not worrying too much about the way in which one publishes such policies, but rather making sure the policies are sound and that they're implemented properly. I agree with that. I think it's about good governments ultimately. And I'd also just add, I mean, obviously, these cases have effectively avoided strikeout 
we are still waiting for the substantive hearing of Shadow Not Parby. I, I understand that the Vedanta case won't progress. So there, there is still quite a long way to go before we really have the outcome in these cases. But it's quite clear that there is an ongoing onslaught in relation to this area in duty of care. Of course, for groups such as Client Earth, the eventual result at trial may not be that important. The high profile of these cases, the wide press attention they're generating for the environmental questions at stake, simply by getting over the strikeout or jurisdictional hurdles, may in themselves attain the objectives of these groups which are bringing them. On that note, I think we've reached the end of our discussion. We've covered a lot of ground in a very short space of time, and I'm grateful to you all for the insights you've shared during our discussion. Thank you all for your time. Thank you. So there we go. A wide-ranging discussion on the energy disputes we're starting to see now, and to look ahead to those we can expect in the future as energy price volatility and the climate crisis continue to have a profound effect on the sector. Once again, I'm grateful to Rachel Lidgate of Herbert Smith Freehills, Elizabeth Farrell of Reed Smith, and James Cutris QC of Fountain Court for their insightful commentary on some of the most pressing legal issues in the energy sector at present. I hope our listeners enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Do join us next time for more up-to-the-minute legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. <laughs>